Chapter 7 Man, a Wild Animal In the past two chapters, I have examined different aspects of the nature of man. In the first, he was regarded just like any other species of wild animal, while in the second, some of his social qualities were considered, which might not be regarded as those of a wild animal. Civilization might, loosely speaking, be counted as a sort of domestication in that it imposes on man conditions not at all typical of wildlife. It might then at least be argued that it is a false analogy to compare man to a wild animal, but that he should rather be compared to one which has been domesticated. I shall maintain that this analogy would be false, and that man is, and will always continue to be, essentially a wild and not a tame animal. Before coming to this main theme, it is important to notice that if it were admissible to regard man as a domesticated animal, the whole time scale of history would have to be radically altered. Thus, though the geological evidence shows that it takes a million years to make a new wild species, we know that the various domesticated animals have been created in a very much shorter time. For example, the ancestors of the greyhound and the bulldog of 10,000 years ago would probably have been quite indistinguishable. If then, man's characteristics could be similarly remolded in so short a time, the whole future of history might be radically different. It would become impossible to forecast man's future after as short a period as 10,000 years, hardly longer than the span of known past history, instead of the million years which holds if he is a wild animal. In the first place, it is necessary to be clear as to what is meant by a wild or a tame animal. We are apt sometimes to call an animal wild because it is dangerous to man, and to call it tame because it is harmless. But this is a slovenly way of speaking, and here I shall use the word tame simply as a synonym for domesticated, which I think is its true meaning. A tame animal, then, is one that does the will of a master, and the savage watchdog, trained to bite all intruders, is tamer than the friendly terrier, which sometimes slips away to do its own private hunting. All tame animals owe their qualities to centuries of selective breeding, and it must always be remembered that the changes made in them owe nothing to the inheritance of acquired characters, but are due to the selection for breeding of those individual animals which show to the highest degree, natural characteristics useful to their masters. A chief feature in domesticated animals 
has been the creation of a great variety of breeds, each specialized for some particular purpose, either practical or aesthetic. Each breed far excels its wild ancestry in the quality for which it has been bred, so that racehorses run faster than wild horses, dairy cows give much more milk than any wild cattle, and the sheepdog has even been bred to do skillfully the exact opposite of what the ancestral wolf would have done. Now human families often show special qualities in which they excel their fellows, and in some cases these qualities seem to be hereditary. Witness the musicians of the Bach family. If man is really a tame animal, there is no reason why breeds of man should not be created, say breeds of mathematicians or of professional runners, who should possess gifts far beyond anything we now know, and far beyond anything that their fellows could compete against. Certainly, at the present time, Mankind is very far from this, but that would not exclude the possibility in the not-so-very-distant future if man really were a tame animal. I shall consider this question of special breeds later in the chapter in more detail. All the evidence seems to show that they will not arise, but to see this clearly, it is best to return to the prime feature of tameness obedience to a master. It is obvious that we in this country, with our passion for freedom, value wildness very highly, whereas in some lands where the population are content to live under a much more strictly controlled rule of discipline, tameness may be more nearly acceptable. This question of taste is irrelevant, however, for it might be that a tame race could achieve so much higher a degree of efficiency that it could master the wild ones, and so reduce them also to a state of tameness. I am going to maintain that this cannot happen, in that man is untamable. The reason involves a feature not often present in scientific arguments, and I will venture to introduce it by means of a fable. There was a man who was endowed with very great intelligence, very great wealth, deep scientific knowledge, and a benevolent wish to improve the lot of mankind. He also knew himself to have the gift of longevity, so that he had the prospect not only of starting on his beneficent plans, but of seeing them through to their final accomplishment. Now it chanced that about this time there came up for sale a large uninhabited island enjoying a climate in every way fitting it for human habitation. He purchased the island and persuaded a large number of his friends and admirers to come with him and to settle there and live under his direction. The director first made a thorough study of his people's natural gifts and capacities, and then he set each man and woman to the work for which they were specially fitted, 
Artisans were chosen who had both skill in craftsmanship and a liking for their trade. Domestic servants who had a passion for cleanliness and cooks who were really interested in the taste of the food they produced. He chose for schoolmasters those who could best inspire their pupils. His professors and research workers were selected because they showed the highest flights of scientific imagination. His lawyers possessed the greatest subtlety in argument. His civil servants and industrialists were those who were gifted with the highest qualities of administrative ability. Nor did he neglect the other sides of his people's interests, for he selected those who were gifted at painting and music and poetry and encouraged them to practice their arts. He also had actors and actresses of great charm and beauty, and athletes who could run very fast, jump very high, or guide a ball with remarkable accuracy. Having laid the foundation of his plan in this manner, he persuaded them all through his dominating personality, nor, be it said, was compulsion entirely absent, to mate together in such a manner that the various special gifts of each group were conserved and enhanced. Those of the settlers who proved unsatisfactory in mind or body were gradually eliminated, not by exile or punishment, but merely by forbidding them to enter into fertile unions. At the end of 10,000 years, he had achieved results in humanity even more remarkable than those that have been already achieved in this span of time in our domestic animals. His actresses were of surpassing beauty, and his athletes, whose limbs had attained very highly specialized proportions, were so persistently victorious that international contests became impossible. All the really ingenious machines in the world were contrived by his engineers, and in their construction his artisans were preeminent. His diplomats could always get their way with the diplomatists of other countries. His research workers made remarkable progress in the development of scientific knowledge, though it was perhaps not often they who started any wholly new subject. The director had produced the surpassing improvement in the quality of his subjects in the course of 10,000 years when it was revealed to him that his life was nearing its end. And now he saw that his work had been in vain because he had made no provision for a successor to himself. He had molded his subjects so that they fulfilled their tasks superlatively because he could look at those tasks objectively, but his own task he could only know subjectively, and the prescriptions he had used for the others were without avail. He had tamed men into being domestic animals, but he could not tame anyone into being a director 
because a director must be a wild and not a tame animal. Though this has only been presented as a fable, the experience with domesticated animals does show that the most astonishing improvements could be made in the various human faculties. If a similar course of continuous selection could be applied to man over as long a period of time, the trouble is that for man this is not possible because he has got to apply the selection to himself. And that means that it is not merely a different problem, but a wholly different kind of problem. There is a fundamental difference between the subjective and the objective. Scientific progress has always succeeded only by regarding its themes of study objectively. Even in the field of psychology, progress has mainly come by the study of the minds of others, that is to say, objectively, instead of by following the old barren course of introspection. The most severe critic of his own conduct can never judge his actions as if they were someone else's, and the selective breeding of other types of people would be no guide at all in the breeding of his own kind. If the director had foreseen his death, he would have tried to produce a successor to himself, since his profound belief in heredity had been so fully confirmed by the remarkable changes he had made in his subjects, he would naturally expect that it would be one of his own sons that would be best fitted to succeed him. But his difficulty would be just the same as if he were trying to find a successor elsewhere. The matter is on quite a different footing from all his other decisions. For the others, he could say, I have improved all our breeds by seeing which son improved on the qualities of his father. That is why I select you. For his own successor, the utmost he could say would be, I am selecting you in the hope that you may be a better director than I have been. But I have no idea how you will set about it, since if I had known what I was failing in, I should have set it right myself. The targets in the two statements are quite different, for in one he knows what he is aiming at, in the other he does not. In one case the target is to make the man better, in the other to hope to make him as good. One is the systematic breeding of tame animals, the other the unsystematic method of nature in the breeding of wild animals. This point is so important that before following it to its conclusion, I will give another example which has the advantage of not being fabulous. In their studies of how to improve the human race, the eugenicists have very naturally considered both ends of their problem, the increase in the good qualities of humanity and the elimination of the bad qualities. Their chief effort has gone, quite rightly at first, into the easy part of the problem, and they have spent most of their energy in pointing out the disastrous tendencies of the present policy of directly encouraging the breeding 
of the feeble-minded. This is undoubtedly useful work, but it is comparatively easy, since these feeble-minded can be regarded objectively by their superiors, and so might become amenable to the same sort of control as is applicable to domestic animals. This restraint of the breeding of the feeble-minded is important, and it must never be neglected, but it cannot be regarded as a really effective way of improving the human race. If by analogy one wished to improve the breed of racehorses, one might accomplish a little by always slaughtering the horse that finished last in every race, but it would be a much slower process than the actual one of sending the winner to the stud farm. Conscious of this criticism, eugenicists have often attempted to define what are the good characteristics which should be positively encouraged instead of only the negative ones that must be discouraged. But the results are disappointing. Lists of meritorious qualities such as good health, good physique, high intelligence, good family history are compiled, and those possessing them are told that they should breed. But the statements lead nowhere in practice, for no one can be expected to assess his own merits and demerits in a balanced way. How, for example, is a man to weigh his own good health or good ability against a heredity made dubious, say, by an uncle who is insane? Or again, how is he to strike a balance between considerable artistic gifts, as he thinks, together with a good family record, but quite bad health. It is clearly beyond anyone to decide these things for himself. And even then, the matter is only half settled, since similar judgments are needed for both partners to that marriage. However helpful the literature may be, which can be consulted, it is evident that subjective judgments on such matters are too difficult. With the best will in the world, they would very often be made wrongly, because, however sincerely he tries, no man can be a good judge in his own case. The only imaginable way of overcoming these difficulties would be to set up a class of consultants who would prescribe what marriages were eugenically admissible and how large the consequent family should be. But this does not solve the difficulty. It only pushes it back a stage, for it leaves unanswered the question, who are to be the consultants and what principles are to guide them in settling the values of the different qualities of mankind? It comes back to just the difficulty I described in my fable, that a tame animal must have a master, and that therefore, though it might be conceivably possible to tame the majority of mankind, this could only be done by leaving untamed a minority of the population. Moreover, this minority would have to be the group possessing the most superior qualities of all, these examples suggest the impossibility of taming mankind as a whole, but before accepting the principle fully, 
it is proper to examine a case where the exact contrary has happened. This is in the insect civilizations of the ants or termites. In applying the same term, civilization, to both ants and men, it is hardly necessary to say that I am drawing an analogy between things which are really of a very different quality. All species of ants live in cities, and some species have developed agriculture, others animal husbandry, but all these practices are purely instinctive and individual to each species. On the other hand, human civilization is an acquired character, based on education, and so is it not inherent in man's nature? Nevertheless, it would be worthwhile to follow out the analogy a little further. Admitting the different sense of the words, it may be said that all species of ants have made the third revolution, the invention of cities, that some have made the second, agriculture, none the first or fourth, fire and science, but they have all added another revolution of their own, the complete control of the problem of sex. The ant's nest has no rulers at all, for the queen is hardly more than an egg-laying mechanism, and they seem to get on perfectly well without civil servants or lawyers or captains of industry. Why cannot man set up a community like an ant's nest? This would be the ideal of the anarchist, and hitherto it has held no promise at all of success. But with the help of recent and probable future biological discoveries, some sort of imitation by man of the ant's nest cannot be quite excluded from consideration. Thus the control of the numbers of the two sexes may become possible, and with the knowledge of the various sexual hormones, it might also become possible to free the majority of mankind from the urgency of sexual impulse so that they could live contented celibate lives instead of the unsatisfied celibate lives that are the compulsory lot of such a large fraction of the present population of the world. If these discoveries should be made, and this is really by no means impossible, man would be able to carry out the sex revolution, which is the typical characteristic of the incest, sorry, insect civilizations. <laughs> the detail would, of course, have to be quite different, for instead of one queen, there would have to be large numbers of fertile women to renew the population, whereas there might be one king, literally the father of his country. Also, it is probable that on account of their greater physical strength, it would be the men who would be the workers. Such an organization is certainly repellently unattractive to most of us, perhaps excepting some of the autocrats of the present world. But it is not this 
that excludes the possibility of it. There is no danger, whatever, of its happening because of the inherent difference between vertebrate and insect, for the vertebrate is so very much more flexible than the insect in its behavior. Most insects simply die if placed on an unfamiliar food plant, whereas the vertebrate will always try experiments if its normal diet fails. An insect can be used to prey on and destroy another one that has become a pest. And when it has done so, the predator will die of starvation. In the same role, a vertebrate predator would not die, but would start to destroy some other, perhaps, beneficent species. Now, of all the vertebrates, man is preeminent in his willingness to try experiments, so that it is inconceivable that he should settle down into the inflexible, unquestioning course of life that is typical of an insect. It would call for a quite radical change in his whole nature. It would not be a mere change into a new species of homo that would be needed, nor even a change into a new genus or family or order of the mammals. It would have to be a fundamental change into a new film of the animal kingdom, and that would not take a mil mere million years, but many hundreds of million years. There is no prospect of man's nature imitating an insect's, but it is much more nearly imaginable that his development should go, like that of the dog's, into a set of breeds, each specialized for a particular purpose. We all of us know of whole human families which possess gifts specialized in some particular direction. And if the spe specialization were narrowed and the gifts improved till all competitors were surpassed, such a family would have turned itself into a breed. But all past history contradicts this tendency, for it suggests that wherever there have been such groups, they have not increased further in their specialized skills, but that after a very few generations, they have tended to merge back into the general population. I will give some examples, though my knowledge of history is hardly deep enough to cite them with any confidence. A first example may be drawn from the sanctity of royal blood, which has been a prevalent idea in many countries, and which would give opportunity for the inbreeding that is essential for the production of a specialized breed. The most extreme case is that of the dynasty of the Ptolemies in Egypt, whose blood was counted as so sacred that the reigning house had to be perpetuated by brother and sister marriages. Biologists no longer now regard close inbreeding as necessarily deleterious, but still the possibility of its evil effects might throw doubt on any positive conclusions 
we could draw from the Ptolemies. But the only conclusions that can be drawn are entirely negative. The record of the dynasty is not very impressive. It is neither much better nor much worse than that of the other dynasties that had not been inbred. And in the end, it collapsed, as did the other dynasties, under the irresistible might of the Romans. Neither in this extreme case, nor in other more modern ones, is there any sign of a tendency for a breed to arise that is specialized for kingship. It might be contended that the number of individuals in reigning houses is too small to give rise to a breed, and my next example concerns a much larger population. It is the military caste of German nobles in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries. Whatever the extra-nuptial habits of this caste, its marriages were most strictly regulated, so that it might have provided the starting point for a specialized breed. It is undoubted that these noble families provided some very good generals. This was inevitable since in their own country they had the monopoly of the officer ranks, but they were not conspicuously better than other generals who did not belong to the caste. In making the comparison, it might be argued that Louis the Fourteenth's generals should be excluded as themselves belonging to a similar caste, but the German military nobles were also far excelled by others, such as Marlborough, who, though of gentle birth, certainly was not drawn from the military caste. Furthermore, if this caste had shown promise of turning into a breed, it should have produced better generals at the end of three centuries than at the beginning, whereas, if anything, they had degenerated. Excluding Napoleon from comparison as an exception to all rules, they showed no marked superiority over his marshals, who came from all classes of society. In three hundred years, this caste certainly showed no signs of turning into a specialized breed. A more striking example is the caste of the Brahmins in India. Because its purity has been preserved over many centuries by the religious sanctions of their creed, they have the advantage of being much more numerous than the castes I have cited hitherto, and they have very certainly played a conspicuous part in the history of India. But they show none of the tendency to an increase in specialization that should characterize the creation of a breed. Since they were never a military caste, it is not surprising that many of the reigning houses of India are not Brahmins, and the priestly function of the Brahmin would more naturally destine him to play the part of philosopher or intellectual. Now it is true that in the modern Indian universities, a considerable fraction, perhaps a majority, of the distinguished professors belong to this caste, but still 
there are quite a number of others as distinguished who do not. It seems at least doubtful whether in this there is any real difference between India and Europe, for in Europe also a very considerable fraction of the intellectual life is contributed by what might be called the hereditary middle classes, that is, by families which have continued through succeeding generations to show a general intellectual ability, though they are in no sense an exclusive caste. Once again, in these exceptionally favorable circumstances, there is no sign of the Brahmins turning from a caste into a breed. This is the place to refer to the case of the Jews, because though very superficially it might be thought similar, it is really quite different. It is true that for centuries they practiced the close inbreeding that would be needed for the creation of a specialized breed, but the point is that they have shown no signs of becoming specialized, for there have been Jews who have excelled in every one of the arts and sciences of civilized life. One of their distinguishing features has perhaps been that they were earlier adapted than the more recently civilized Western Europeans to the crowded life of cities. But this is not so much a specialization as an adaptation in which they have anticipated the others. In the course of the centuries, their race has had one great advantage, though they would certainly very willingly have foregone it. This is their long history of almost continuous persecution. And it is tempting to believe that this has been an important factor in giving them their high qualities. In order merely to keep alive, a Jew had to show intelligence more frequently than did the surrounding people, and this intelligence was gradually incorporated in his heredity. But in all this, there is no sign of specialization. At most, it is a more complete adaptation to the crowded life of cities than has been hitherto shown by the rest. All these examples confirm that there are specialized abilities in some of humanity and that they are often hereditary, but they hold out no expectation that the specializations will spontaneously become narrower or that they will rise to higher levels, which is what they would have to do if man were destined automatically to branch out into breeds as distinct as those of the domestic animals. There may be those who will regret that man will not attain these pinnacles of specialization, but the failure is inevitable. In order to create such specialist breeds, there would have to be a master breed at the summit, and this would be a totally different kind of thing from all the other breeds, because it would have to create itself. At every turn, the argument leads back to this question of the master breed. Nothing can be done in the way of changing man from a wild into a tame animal without first creating such a breed. But most people are entirely inconsistent in their ideas of what they want created. 
On the one hand, they feel that all the world's problems would be solved if only there were a wise and good man who would tell everybody what to do. But on the other hand, they bitterly resent being themselves told what to do. As to which of these motives would prevail, it seems at least probable that it would be the resentment so that if the breed should arise in any manner, it would be extirpated before it could ever become well established. It is, however, imaginable that there might be a part of the world in which the breed was accepted, and that this part should gain a superiority over the rest of the world, because it could develop various suitable breeds of specialists under the control and direction of the master breed, and by the exercise of the skills of these specialists, it might overcome the other nations, so it is appropriate to look a little further into the matter. Imagine that through new discoveries in biology, say by suitably controlled doses of x-rays, it becomes possible to modify the genes in any desired direction so that heritable changes can be produced in qualities of some members of the human race. I may say I do not believe this is ever likely to be practicable, but that does not matter as far as concerns the present argument. The first success might be in some physical attribute, for example, by making a breed with longer and stronger legs so that it could jump a good deal higher than anyone can at present. But passing to more important matters, there might be created a breed which could think more abstractly, say a breed of mathematicians, or one that could think more judiciously, say a breed of higher civil servants. These would be of great value, but they would not be the master breed, and the question arises of a more precise prescription for what the qualities of the master breed are to be. It is usually best to build on what one already has, rather than to start from nothing. So the natural procedure would be to begin with existing rulers, since these have already established themselves as acceptable to at least a good many of their fellow creatures. One would collect together, say, a hundred of the most important present rulers. Among them, of course, should be included a good many who exert secret influence without holding any overt office and tell them to get on with the business of settling what the master breed should be. It is impossible to believe that any such body of men would ever reach agreement on any subject whatever so this plan fails. In search for the qualities of the master breed, the next idea might be to appeal to the wisdom of our forefathers. Plato, in his Republic, devotes much attention to this very subject. Why not, then, find a Plato, give him his group of recruits, and let him educate them for thirty years according to his prescription? though perhaps fortifying it by the findings of modern educational theory. The result should be the master breed, but this will not do either, 
for Plato was not educating the master breed, he was educating the civil servant breed. It is not about these that there is any difficulty. It is the finding of someone to fill the role of Plato himself. It all comes back to the point that we do not know in the remotest degree what we want, for I do not count as an answer the one that would usually be proposed, which would be that the type required should be good and wise, while at the same time showing a special favor for the particular enthusiasms of the proposer. The reason for the impossibility of making a prescription for the master breed is that it is not a breed at all. To call it so is to change the sense of the word. Breeds are specialized for particular purposes, but the essence of masters is that they must not be specialized. They have to be able to deal with totally unforeseen conditions. And this is a quality of wild, not of tame life. No prescription for the master breed is possible. In these considerations, I have been assuming the license of supposing that we might be able really to change human nature in a heritable manner, and this is far beyond all probability. Returning now to more practical considerations, there seems no likelihood whatever of a master breed arising. All through history, the most formidable difficulty of every ruler has been the selection of his successor, and the best intentions have been nearly always disappointed. Indeed, it is notably surprising how very seldom the choice has been well made. The immediate cause of these failures has been the difficulty of these subjective judgments on the basis of which the choice must be made, but fundamentally they have arisen from a cause in the deep nature of mankind. Of all animals, man is the most ready to try experiments, and there are always candidates, far too many candidates, who regard themselves at fit, as fit members for the master breed. This quality is a characteristic of a wild animal, and it will always prevent man from domesticating himself. He will always prevent the creation of the master breed, through which alone the rest of man could be domesticated. The evolution of the human race will not be accomplished in the 10,000 years of tame animals, but in the million years of wild animals, because man is and always will continue to be a wild animal. End of chapter 7